0: We're starting a series on the book of Acts today. We're going to be beginning with chapter 1, verse 1, looking at the first 11 verses. And we're going to be looking at the book of Acts from now up until Easter. And so we're going to be looking, and really the overarching idea behind this series is, why do I need the church? We're going to be answering that question in lots and lots of different ways. And so today we're looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So give ear So as I said a minute ago, as we start our study in the book of Acts, we're going to be looking at why you need the church. Just saying that, I think all, you know, causes bristles to come up in some folks, because there are a lot of people today who believe they don't need the church. And in fact, it's worse. There are a lot of people who think that the church is what's wrong in the world. You know, it's the church's abuse of authority. It's the church's activities that really seem to ostracize or alienate or persecute folks that is the big problem in the world. But I think this series is going to present evidence to us, and it's going to challenge us to think differently. And so, as I said, our first three sermons are going to land in our discipleship plan. Okay, Acts is going to teach us about the three loves. It's going to teach us about loving Christ, loving the church, and loving the world. And it's going to teach us that real love means knowing, being, and doing in relationship to those three things. And so in our text today, we're going to see that you need the church, okay? Christians need the church. Non-Christians need the church. The world needs the church. You all need the church. We all need the church because of the authority of the one who leads the church, okay? It's because of the authority of the one who leads the church. Now, there's a lot going on in these 11 verses, Okay, this passage is packed. In one sense, like any good introduction, I think you could find the entire book of Acts. All 28 chapters are found in these 11 verses. Okay, that's what a good introduction does. It gets you ready for what's coming. Um, But the biggest thing, what's most crucial in these 11 verses, is the ascension of Jesus. Okay, the ascension of Jesus. Now, this is an event. I mean, it's found in verse 9. This is an event that is often overlooked. And I confess, I've been preaching and teaching for, well, I've been preaching for 10 years, teaching for a lot longer than that, and I've never, ever preached on the ascension of Jesus. Okay, and I've been a Christian for now 19 years, and I've never heard a sermon on the ascension of Jesus. But in the last few weeks that I've been getting ready for this, I've come to realize just how important, this event is just how important the ascension is not just in the bible but in our own lives and so we're going to look at the ascension in three points today if you want to take notes you can take notes there on page seven here are the three points you need to know the ascended jesus okay know the ascended jesus point two be ascended with jesus and three do life as Jesus' ascended people. Okay, know the ascended Jesus, be ascended with Jesus, and then do life as Jesus' ascended people. So first, know the ascended Jesus. We have to be clear exactly in terms of what happens. What is the ascension? Lots of people, scholars have said, oh, this is a metaphor, this didn't literally happen, that uh, this was some spiritual, and they come up with different ways to explain it. Let's look and see what exactly happened. It starts in verse 3. To the apostles, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. He did this for 40 days. And the gospel tells us exactly what those proofs were. Okay? Jesus was with them. Okay? He spent long periods of time with them. He spoke with them. He ate with them. Okay? Spirits don't eat. Spirits don't have corporeal bodies. Spirits don't eat. So Jesus ate with them, showing that he was raised from the dead. He appeared to over 500 people at one time, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. The apostles touched him. You know, and even those who were skeptical about Jesus believed. As Mike was praying about the assurance that Thomas got, if you remember in uh, chapter in John chapter 20, verse 25, Thomas heard that Jesus was raised from the dead, and he said this. He said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas was pretty clear, right? He heard the news that Jesus was raised. He said, well, there must be some other explanation because people don't rise from the dead, right? Nobody rises from the dead. And so then Jesus appears to Thomas a few verses later, and says to him, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas's response was, my Lord and my God. So you want to talk about proof, right? People talk about proof. The people that reported, the apostles of Jesus, his chosen ones, were given proof after proof after proof that he was raised from the dead. That's important to know, okay? In a world today where we're 2,000 years removed, right, it's difficult because we say, well, what's the proof for us? We'll talk about that, actually, a little bit later. But you need to know that the folks who wrote these things down stood before people and had proof of the resurrection, okay? And so there are times when we believe something, not because we've seen the evidence ourselves, but because someone trustworthy has reported on the evidence, right? You read some news stories, and there are things that you read, and you're like, well, that's probably not true, because this person clearly is biased for whatever reason. And yet there are some things that you read, and you think, okay, the evidence is there. This is clearly true, right? When it comes to what the Scripture says about the resurrection of Jesus, you need to know that they had proof, and they they validated their testimony of Jesus's resurrection with proof okay and it was such that i mean you could say well they were biased but they also gave up their lives for the proof that they were testifying to and so we can have assurance in the account of the scriptures and so he jesus bodily rose from the dead but then verse nine while they were watching he was lifted up and a cloud took them out took him out of their sight and so jesus was I mean I wasn't there but the image is he's standing with the disciples talking to them and then he was literally lifted up and then he got on a cloud and he was raised up into heaven okay that was a that was as historical an event as the resurrection okay now I know for so many people and I've got friends this is just unbelievable you know like this is stupid silly it's a myth I mean this doesn't happen and so why would you you know, want to claim this, because this just makes it sound like you're a fairy tale religion, right? I mean, this is how a lot of people think. And it's true that this doesn't happen in our known world of space and time, right? We don't see people ascending into heaven anymore. But that's part of the joy of Christianity, okay? Part of the good news is that there is a strength in the universe beyond our strength. There is a power that we can appeal to, look to, and hope in when we're at the end of our rope. There is a wisdom there is, that, that goes beyond our wisdom. There is an authority that we can trust when all things in this life have failed us. That God actually is active in the world. And if God could raise Jesus from the dead, surely God could raise him up into heaven. Now, to really understand why this is important or why God did this, you have to understand the meaning of the ascension itself. Okay, so not just what happened, that this was a bodily ascension into heaven. But what did it mean? Really, it meant two things. Well, maybe three. (laughs) Two or three things. First, the ascension is Jesus' enthronement as king. Okay, this is the inauguration ceremony for Jesus. Okay, this is his swearing in. This is him taking the throne, okay? This is the point at which he is granted the power and the authority to rule and reign. One author said this, in the Bible, heaven is the control room for earth. And so Jesus ascending means that he is actually in charge of what goes on here and now. If you read Psalm 110, it's the enthronement psalm for the kings. And God says to the Messiah... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You will reign even in the midst of your enemies. And so Jesus is ascending uh, into heaven and taking the throne. He's taking the throne. Now, the second thing this means is that this is actually the consummation of the message of the Bible. Okay? This is actually the end of the story of the Bible. Okay, now what do I mean by that? Well, we're going to have to put our thinking caps on. I'm going to stretch you, and I'm going to try to give you the whole Bible, okay, here in just a couple of minutes. Okay, so be ready for that. (laughs) Creation and fall show that paradise was lost. Okay, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, right? Well, what we find out, if you read Ezekiel 28, is that the Garden of Eden was up on a mountain, and it was called the Mountain of God in Ezekiel 28. Okay, when Adam and Eve fell, they were kicked out of the garden. They were sent back down the mountain, and there was an angel with a flaming sword standing to bar passage back up the mountain. Now, the rest of the Bible is an attempt to regain heaven. Okay? The whole message of the Bible, the whole rest of the Bible, is people trying to ascend the mountain of God back into God's presence. Okay? Got to understand that. And God was part of that process, He was trying to help his people, to be able to do that. And so God ordained leadership in the Old Testament to bring people back into his presence, okay, to lead people back up the mountain. The Psalm of Ascents that we read today, we see that in the priesthood, God ordained priests to lead people to ascend into God's presence. The idea of an altar was like a mini mountain that you would ascend in order to meet with God. Okay? when the tabernacle was put on Mount Zion, then it gave, it gave rise to these psalms of ascent because you would sing them as you were ascending the mountain because the image was as you went into the presence of God to worship, you were actually ascending into heaven. And so the priests were there to help bring God's people into his presence. And then the kings, God established the kingship because the king would ascend to God's throne and he would represent the authority of God on earth okay and so the whole bible is really god's people trying to get back up the mountain trying to get back into heaven trying to get back in to the presence of god there's a book that i had for a while i hadn't cracked until getting ready for this it's by a guy named douglas farrow f-a-r-r-o-w called ascension and ecclesia and this book has radically changed i mean it's sort of exploded the notion of the ascension for me I now understand how the Ascension fits into the gospel because of this book. It's 350 pages on the Ascension of Jesus. It's incredible. It's incredible. Let me give you a couple of quotes here from this because it will help explain this consummation of the Bible's message in the Ascension of Jesus. He says, It was chiefly through these two institutions, the priesthood and the kingship, that Israel kept its bearings for the journey back up God's mountain. There is no shortage of evidence with which to back this claim. The biblical story begins with Eden, of course, the mountain garden of God from which Adam was forced to descend, at the foot of which was the flaming sword of the guardian cherubim, which would frustrate any attempt to return. The pattern of descent and ascent is furthered in the story of the great flood, during which it was granted to one man, his family, and representatives of the animal creation with him to rise far above even the highest places of our fallen chaotic world until he comes to rest on Mount Ararat. Next is Sinai, which God graciously invited Moses to ascend on behalf of his people, on which the 70 elders also saw God in a communion meal. There on Sinai, the pattern was laid out for the holy tabernacle, in which the high priest was to ascend by stages into God's presence once each year, and from there, descend to bless the people. When this tabernacle comes to rest on Mount Zion, it is combined with the kingship in Israel so that ascent to the Davidic throne likewise comes to hold promise of access to the lost blessings of the mountain garden of God. The problem was that in the Old Testament, the offer was made, the efforts were made, but they never ever succeeded. And so this author goes on to say, So it goes throughout the entire body of Old Testament literature. Along the way, every would-be high priest is thrust out again from the Holy of Holies, barred for another year. Every would-be king is carried down from his throne in exile or in death. When Jesus finally does come as the Messiah... He does come himself as a prophet, but it is plain that he came to ascend as high priest and king into God's presence and upon the kingly throne, moving toward the destiny of humanity. He came for nothing less. Did you get that? Jesus' own U-shaped course, right? From heaven to earth from earth to the grave, from the grave to the resurrection, and then from the resurrection to the ascension back up into the heavenly places. That U-shaped course of coming down to save is an effort to bring up, to achieve the goal of humanity so that someone could be a success, so that he could actually fulfill the destiny of humanity in himself. And so what does this mean? This means that Jesus is the champion who finally made it. I mean, really. He's the one who finally... He's like the superstar athlete who wins for the team, who wins for your team while you're sitting there watching the television, right? And yet you're so moved. Why is that? It's because you have a hope that your superstar can pull it out, and when he does, you rejoice, you celebrate, right? Or he's like the artist who can create this experience that you love, that you experience, that you can see and feel, but you can't do it on your own. And yet, when you see it, you know it's true and it's there. I mean, and this makes me ask you know, what is it? Like, think about this for a second. What are you yearning for? Like, what is it that you're aiming for in life? What kinds of blessings do you wish you had? You know, is it success? Is it money? Is it happiness? Is it security? Is it a relationship? Is it a career? I mean, what are the things that you're aiming for, that you're spending your energies trying to make happen for yourself? Part of the good news of the ascension is that Jesus has achieved it all. He has achieved it all. In his ascension, he is ascending into heaven, and he basks in the glory of perfection. He has inherited, he has earned all of the blessings of heaven, and he is up there enjoying not just the things that we're aiming for in this life, but what they're pointing to, a greater reality that they're pointing to. And so this is why you need the church. It's because Jesus is the one who has done this. And in the church, you find that Jesus is your superstar. He's your champion. Because you find out that Jesus didn't do this for himself. He did it for you. He did it because he knows he's watched human history as person after person after person makes an effort and then falls. Right? Makes an effort and falls. And so Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to do it so that when I do it, I can share it with you. That's good news. Now, in his ascension, the other way we can look at this is that Jesus is actually joining heaven and earth, okay? He is joining heaven and earth. How do we know this? Well, because he ascends into heaven, right? But he ascends bodily into heaven, okay? Jesus doesn't forego his human body to ascend into heaven. He brings his humanity into heaven. You follow that? Does that make sense? That Jesus went with, he he went, he didn't stop being human. He ascended into heaven, right? His spirit didn't leave his body and it crumpled to the ground, lifeless. Jesus' body, his resurrected body, went up into heaven. Heaven and earth are the two interlocking spheres of God's reality, Okay, we have a visible creation and an invisible creation. Heaven is God's space. Earth is our space. The risen body of Jesus is the first and so far the only object, which is fully at home in both. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, what this means is that physicality is good. The earth is good. Okay, it's true that the earth has fallen. So we would say, we've said in the past, that the earth is both beautiful and broken. Okay, sometimes when we get really super religious, we tend to think, oh, this world's evil, this world's awful, this world is going to pass away, everything's going to burn, so what's the point? The whole point is to be apart from our bodies, apart from everything physical, to be in heaven with our spirit, in heaven with God. If that were really God's intention then Jesus would not have bodily ascended into heaven, okay? You need to follow that, okay? The bodily ascension of Jesus means that heaven is not, uh, is not against being physical, okay? So part of the practicality of this and part of the, the payoff for this is, guess what? The things that you enjoy in this life, they're gifts from God for you to enjoy in this life. I mean, really, like, God has made a world for us to enjoy. Do you think he was just, like, messing around with the colors? Do you think he was just messing around with the trees and the leaves and the canyons? And the Do you think he was messing around with human beings that he would inspire, making his own image so that they would create beautiful things? Do you really think it's all just going to turn into ash? That's not what the Bible teaches. I know there are a lot of churches that do have a very disembodied sense of what eternity is going to be like. But the, if, if your sense of eternity is disembodied, is without a body, you're running headlong. I mean, you're running smack. Uh, what's the word? You're running into the wall of Jesus' of Jesus's ascension. Okay? Because in the ascension, Jesus says physical... The physical creation is good, okay? It is fallen, it needs to be redeemed, but it is good, okay? It's good. History is moving toward a bodily existence. We're not, heaven is where we go after we die, but we don't stay there. The end result is a new heaven and new earth. We pray this, don't we? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We say, our Father who art in heaven, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you're up there, we're down here. We don't want that to happen anymore. We want to close the gap. And so, hallowed be your name. Let your name be honored here in this world. right? Bring your kingdom, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Close the gap between heaven and earth. That's what we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer. Make this world more like the world to come. And the ascension of Jesus says, it's coming. So this also means that God's kingdom has come, right? It's interesting. The disciples ask, so, Jesus, are you in verse 6, will you restore at this time the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' answer is kind of a yes and a no, okay? He gets kind of vague about times and seasons. You're not really sure. He kind of leaves you thinking, well, I'm sorry I asked, or maybe I shouldn't have asked. You know, it's kind of the way he answers there. But what he's saying there is he's saying yes and no, No, the kingdom is not being restored to Israel in that it's not going to be politics as usual, okay? His reign is not going to look like their desire. Because what most of the Jews of Jesus' day thought was they were hoping that God was going to come and his kingdom was going to come, and they were going to stand above all the nations of the world and just crush them, you know, stand over and put their foot on their neck and just destroy them. You know, we've been beat up, we've been suffering, we've been oppressed for so long, we're going to get you back. So this is going to be our time. Jesus is saying, no, that's not what my kingdom looks like. In fact, if you just saw what I went through, that's what my kingdom looks like. The way my kingdom comes is not by me squashing people like a bug, but it's by me coming and offering my life so that they might be freed from the things that are pushing them to oppress you. So Jesus says, no, it's not coming like that. And so in a sense, his followers had to sacrifice their own dreams of the kingdom and adopt Jesus' vision for how it was going to come about. So the kingdom has come, but it's not as they expected. So all of that is about knowing the ascended Jesus. You need to understand the ascension. Our second point is that you need to be ascended with Jesus. Okay, you need to be ascended with with jesus so jesus wants us to do more than just know his ascension he wants us to be ascended with him okay so everybody be ascended with jesus go come on how exactly does that happen right like that's it's even a passive right say be ascended in in english grammar that's a passive like you can't actually make that happen has happened to you being ascended. How do you do that? How do you get it done to you? Jesus tells us in verses 4 and 5. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse, look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So Jesus is saying that you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that relate to being ascended with Jesus? Well, Romans 8.11 says this, If the spirit who, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Okay? If you are baptized into the Holy Spirit, If you are baptized in the Spirit, what that means is that heaven has been poured out over you. Okay, that's what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. Luke points us back to the baptism of John, and so does Jesus. I mean, quoting Jesus, he does that. Verse 5, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Luke and Jesus are saying, you remember John the Baptist, how he poured water out over you to cleanse you from your sins because you have been wayward from God to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Well, it will be like that except what will be poured out over you isn't just water but the Holy Spirit will be poured out over you. And this is the heart of Acts. This idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's the heart of the whole book that God is at work and he is doing something new in the world. And as it happens, as God begins to work in the world, it catches up within this powerful movement of God, every child, man, and woman who believes in Jesus. If you line up with what God is doing in the world, then you will find be yourself baptized. And we're going to see what that looks like in chapter 2. And so what this means then is that the Holy Spirit makes you experience the ascension personally. When you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you experience the ascension of Jesus. It's in a foretaste way, okay? In Ephesians 1, it says that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until we get there, okay? So it's like if—you know what a down payment is, right? You put down 10%, you know, so it's like a tithe. What God is saying here is that I have all the blessings of heaven, right? They are here. Jesus is experiencing them to the fullest, When you believe in him, I pour my spirit out over you. I pour heaven out over you. And you begin to experience now what you will experience completely in the new heavens and earth. Okay? And so think through this with me. With the ascension of Jesus, his ascension is him going up into heaven. But baptism for us is heaven being poured out and coming down to us. Okay, do you understand that? I mean, it's incredibly powerful. I mean, this is why we pour when we baptize. We pour out water because it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit being poured out. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 2. It's really clear. The Holy Spirit is poured out. What you see is being poured out over you. So this is why we pour water over folks. So what does that mean? What, what experiences do you have? Well, think about it. Let's just let's take a step back. And let's pretend for a minute that you don't know anything about anything. Um, what would happen? Yeah, that's not too much of a stretch for some of you. Is that that the... What would happen if somebody, normal person, um, if heaven were to envelop this person, what would they look like? What would they act like? If heaven came and drenched somebody, you know, if someone got drenched with heaven, what would they act like? What would they talk like? How would they treat other people? What, relation, what would their relationships look like? What would they look like at work? What would they look like in their neighborhoods? What baptism in the Holy Spirit means, if you've been baptized, if you have the Holy Spirit, then it could be that you've been selling yourself short and you haven't realized, oh my goodness, I have the blessings of heaven. I've been enveloped by the Holy Spirit. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That means I have the blessings of heaven. They've been given to me. They've been poured out over me. And so you want to ask yourself, I mean, just think through, like, what are some ways that your life doesn't reflect the presence of heaven? You know, maybe write one or two down. Like, what are some areas, what's a relationship maybe that you have where you don't feel like heaven shows up? You know, if you were to look at that, you would think, well, based on this evidence alone, I'm not sure if I am baptized in the Holy Spirit. You want to think about that situation, that relationship, that issue, that temptation. And then you want to, like, you need to you need to preach to yourself. You need to preach the good news that, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit means that heaven has come into your heart that heaven has come into your life. And you now have a love that comes from Jesus, comes from heaven. You have a patience that comes from heaven. You have a joy that comes from heaven. You have wisdom that comes from heaven. And even this week when we were in staff meeting, we were talking about the relationship between our obedience and and the blessings. and and it it was something something kind of new came out in terms of a formulation, we realized that I think we all recognize that we don't obey so that we can earn the blessings, but sometimes our obedience helps us experience the blessings. Okay? So our obedience doesn't earn blessings because we've been given all the blessings of heaven in the Holy Spirit if we believe in Jesus. But when we walk in those blessings, when we live as though heaven actually has come into our lives, You know, when there's someone that we're really struggling to be patient with and loving with, if we exercise patience with that person, if we don't get mad at them as quickly as we did before, because we have an eternal, infinite connection to the patience of God himself in heaven. And if we walk in that patience, we will experience more of that part of heaven. Does that make sense? And so... It's when we walk in these things, sometimes that our experience of them grows. And so that's how you experience the ascension, is that you experience more and more of heaven as you preach your experience of the Holy Spirit to yourself. You've got to tell yourself, look, I've been baptized into the Holy Spirit. I have God's presence in me. I have the blessings of heaven that have been poured out over me. Now, what should that mean for me? You need to go through that process as you think through it your experience of that will grow now what this does generally for us once you experience the baptism of the holy spirit once and that happens once you believe If you trust in jesus the spirit comes down and descends on you okay so that's all it takes just it's a trust in jesus confessing your sin trusting in his sacrifice for you and his resurrection trusting his ascension was for you so that he could share these blessings with you once you do that it makes you radically different and radically the same as the world okay it makes you radically different from the world and then radically the same what does that mean well it makes you radically different because you unlike the world have experienced the blessings of heaven okay okay You've experienced the blessings of heaven. You are now connected to Jesus who is in heaven and he has poured those blessings out on you. And that makes you different. Makes you different from the world around you that hasn't had that experience. And this makes sense, right? Because Jesus, in a sense, is disconnected from the world because he's up in heaven, right? He has ascended into heaven. But then we're also radically the same as the world, okay? And, And what that means is that we're still in this life, right? And we are still embodied in this life. There is still a lot that we have in common with the world around us, right? We have similar needs. We have similar desires. We have similar hopes and aspirations. And so we would say that, yes, like we're still, we we want to affirm what is best in the world, right? Even if we think that there are parts of the world that are broken and need to be redeemed. Okay, and so we would affirm and seek to redeem the world. And we call this being city positive. We'd be for the world, wanting to affirm what's good and then redeem what's bad. Okay, now this also reflects the ascension of Jesus because Jesus rose bodily into heaven, right? He's disconnected, but he's still connected because he's in a body. The same thing for us. We are disconnected because we've experienced the power of heaven in our lives but we're still connected because we're in this life, okay? And so we're radically different, radically the same. The Bible sums it up by just saying that we are in the world, but not of the world, okay? And so that's how to be ascended with Jesus. Our third point is to do life as Jesus's ascended people. Do life as Jesus's ascended people. What does he call us to do? Well, he says it. Where is it? Verse uh, verse nine or verse eight. The spirits come upon you, you'll receive power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The call for us is to be witnesses. What we're supposed to do as Jesus' ascended people is to witness to witness we're going to look in further sections of acts what this what it means for them to be witnesses but for us it means that our lives become a testimony of the resurrection and ascension of jesus okay in that day when a new ruler would take over a new emperor would take the throne in rome they would send out witnesses heralds throughout the empire to announce the inauguration of the new emperor Jesus is saying that you are the ones that I'm calling to announce that I am in, that I am now reigning, that the kingdom of God has come. And so that's our call. Our call is to witness. Now, how do we do that? Well, we witness by knowing, being, and doing with the world, right? We know the world well enough to know what to witness. What truths does the world need to hear? What truths do people need to hear that they don't understand about Jesus, that they've misunderstood, right? We need to be in relationship with the world around us so that we have the opportunity to share of the good news with Jesus. And then we need to serve, right? We need to do acts of service. And what's neat is that all of those things are part of our witness. It's not just the words that we share. You know, we've talked about this, that oftentimes it's our service, that actually gives us a platform so that we can share. You know, our service gives us a relationship, which gives us the ability to share the good news. And so it's learning, it's loving, and it's lending a hand. It'd be three L ways to think about that. That's our witness. And the scope, Jesus maps this out, and this is big. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is like the Great Commission. This is the the agenda that Jesus sets his witnesses on. Jerusalem was home. Judea was surrounding countryside that was of similar culture. Samaria was uh, surrounding countryside that was a radically different culture. And then the ends of the earth is not close and not the same culture. Okay? And so Jesus is saying, you will be my witnesses to all of these areas. <clears throat> and I want to talk to you about that just real quick about what does that mean for you? What does that mean for Harbor? Cuz we as a as, as a Harbor as as the big movement has gripped onto this verse and I think we're implementing this vision of Jesus. And so for you, your Jerusalem would be your neighborhood and your home. Right? People who are close to you, similar culture. Judea might be your workplace. Right, because you got to commute, so it's in the surrounding area, Um, but same, similar culture. Samaria would be anything that's close by that's of a different culture. Okay, so this means you cross over economic barriers, racial barriers to try to touch folks around you. Socio, I mean, social, sociological barriers. So it might mean reaching out to folks who are homeless if you're not. It might mean, if you're homeless, reaching out to folks who aren't homeless and building a relationship, right? It could mean, you know, um, know, it could mean Spanish-speaking folks. It could mean, I mean, our hope is to figure out what are the Samarias around us that God might be calling us to be his witnesses to, where culture's different and it's going to be uncomfortable for us. Right? That's part of being a witness because what we want to make sure happens is that people don't get the sense that Jesus is the God of downtown, but nowhere else. Or Jesus is the God of professionals, but no one else. Or Jesus is the God of the homeless and no one else. Right? If we don't have Samaria in this, then sometimes if we are too homogenous in our appearance, we will end up making it look like Jesus is us or he's only for us, you know. And this is why in some church cultures, you know, Jesus is a Republican. Other cultures, Jesus is a Democrat, and you'd be an idiot to think otherwise, right? That's not good, right? That's not good. Samaria helps us to break out of those uh, those barriers. Then the ends of the earth for you would be maybe mission trips, going to other countries, you know, you kind of get the idea. For harbor-wide, now as we've thought through this, and you know, maybe a lot of you have heard Dick talk about this, our Jerusalem is that we want to plant churches in San Diego County, right? That's our Jerusalem, San Diego County. Judea would be close by similar culture. So we think Los Angeles County, Orange County. And we've had opportunities as a movement to even disciple church planters and help foster and grow church plants in San Diego and Orange Counties, or in LA and Orange Counties. Our Samaria? What do you think? Close by different culture? Tijuana, that's right. And so for us, we hope that God will raise up folks from our midst that will help us bridge the cultural gap. You know, and we've seen him do that. We've seen, you know, in some ways we've started and then we've stopped and then we've gone forward and backward, and, and we're praying that God would continue to open up doors of opportunity so that we would see San Diego Tijuana love Jesus. And we would see a church that crosses over the borders and recognizes that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not just the King of San Diego. And then the end is the earth. This is, you know, church consulting. Movement-wise, this is church consulting for other countries. And we've seen this happen for folks who are planning churches in Japan, in Chile, in, um, in, uh, in India. You know, we have a, a multi-site conference where we come and talk about our model. And we have churches and, and leaders that come from all over the world to come and to learn what we're doing so that we can help them grow the church. You know, this also may mean at some point that we send out foreign missionaries. You know, we do have some. Uptown's got, I know, one who's in Ethiopia, another one who's in Tijuana. Um, and, you know, I don't know how many of, you know, I don't know how many more are out there, but um, but so this is how we look at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth um, in terms of the harbor movement. And for us, as we do this, The strongest witness, I think, this is where it kind of comes back full circle, our strongest witness is any time that we ourselves, through word, relationship, and deed, any time that we ourselves can be a proof of the resurrection. Like, that's your strongest witness, is when your life demonstrates that Jesus has conquered sin, when your life demonstrates a willingness to be humble, when your life demonstrates a willingness to acknowledge when you have failed, Right? when your life demonstrates a love for other people, a willingness to sacrifice, a willingness to absorb more punishment than you dish out. You know, those, in a sense, are proofs, I think, modern day, of the fact that Jesus has conquered sin. Those things are proofs that not only was Jesus ascended into heaven, but you've experienced his ascension. Your life shows. I mean, that's our hope, is that when we experience the Spirit, that the rest of the people around us can see and they'll know that there's something different about this group of folks. And they would say, well, you know what? Even when you don't talk to me, I feel like you witness. (laughs) You witness to me the reality of your faith. That's our goal. And it grows as we pursue after Jesus. I think the best way to close this is to sort of set the drama for what we've looked at here in these 11 verses. So we have Jesus risen from the dead. He's enthroned in heaven, right? The apostles have been commissioned as witnesses, and you have this unbelievable promise of the kingdom that it's going to go and it's going to change the world. What is this going to mean for these 11 people? What's this going to mean for the church, the followers of Jesus? What's going to happen next? What's it going to mean for the world? That's what we're going to find out in the coming weeks. But what I'm just as interested in finding out, what I'm maybe even more interested in finding out is what can a group of people who know and love the ascended Jesus do in San Diego as they bear witness with their lives, their relationships, and their words? What kind of impact could the kingdom of God have here? I think we're going to find out also in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Jesus, you are ascended into heaven, that you would share your ascension with us is just mind-boggling. And I know there are folks here who don't believe it. There are Christians here who don't believe this, who think it sounds good, but they don't feel it in their lives. Jesus, will you break through that barrier of resignation, that barrier of doubt, that barrier of unbelief, and help them to see and trust what you say in your word, that when the Holy Spirit comes, there will be power. Help the Christians who are here and are struggling to apprehend and to to, to live this ascension out. Help them, draw near to them, and show them your power so that they would see that they in you are strong. And Lord, those who are here who don't yet, trust you who haven't yet put their faith in the ascended Jesus speak to them Jesus draw near to them and help them see that everything they're looking for they can find in you and so much more and help them to see that the things they're aiming for when they have you sometimes those things become even more of a blessing in life draw many to yourself Jesus help us To see you ascended with faith and to ascend with you. We pray in your name. Amen.